John Murphy is Vice President of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, Bio, the largest trade association in the world representing biotechnology companies. John's role encompasses all legal issues impacting healthcare biotechnology across the country. As well, he's an expert on topical issues such as intellectual property, drug pricing, and legislation in the biopharma sector. He's a graduate of Villanova University and the Catholic University of Columbus Law School. John, it's great to see you. Great to see you, too. Lot to talk about here. So you were head counsel, now you're vice president. How's it going? That's good. So I still have um, the legal issues, but I, I now also um, have oversight of all of the policy, domestic and international policy issues for the organization. Well, it's a good so, thing there's nothing going on there. Yeah, right. We have a <laughs> we have a, a holidays coming up, and we keep hoping here in the United States that Congress will just go away. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, they have too many things they need to do in the next uh, four weeks. In fact. Um, in, in addition to funding the government uh, and passing the defense authorization bill, the Senate's going to have to make some decisions here on the, uh, the broader big Build Back Better Act of, of President Biden's uh, signature legislative initiative. And it has a ton of drug pricing issues that we care about. Which we're certainly going to get into. Um, and obviously, full disclosure, Vital Transformation has been working very yeah. closely to bio. We were part of the injunction against <laughs> most favored nations, which thankfully was, was, has gone away. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I just like to talk to about, talk to the audience about, about bio specifically bio, when we say the largest trade organization about biotechnology, I mean, what does this mean practically? Yeah. So it's, it's a really broad mandate amongst our membership. So uh, a lot of people in the Washington beltway see bio as representing the drug interests of the biotech space. So, you know, if you, if you juxtapose the interests of the small molecule biopharma, uh, industry, which is adequately represented, I would say, uh, very adequately by our, co- our colleagues at, at Pharma. Uh, Bio's original mandate was to represent all of the living biotechnology in- innovation in the United States and abroad. And so um, you've seen that go from a small industry that uh, started out developing some cancer and some other very highly targeted uh, therapies to a very broad-based healthcare industry with 3,500 or so companies any given day who are, are trying to work on all uh, a litany of ailments uh, stemming from curing cancer, Alzheimer's treatments to all three of the vaccines developed for the COVID-19 space that are approved here in the United States. There are obviously more, sure. um, but also um, a whole other piece of the biotech mandate uh, centers around our agricultural biotechnology and our industrial biotechnology. Uh, and that's a, a piece, I think, that has the potential to be a broader growth area for the industry over the next several years. If you think about climate change technologies, the vast majority of climate change technology research is centered in the biotechnology and infrastructure because that's where you get the clean fuels, the renewable fuels, all of the carbon capture technologies. And that's an area that I think is looking for ex- exponential growth over the next five to 10 years. And when we talk specifically about the healthcare bio, where we've been working with yeah. you guys, how many companies are we talking about? What are you, what's your membership like? Yeah, so point? Bio's membership right now in that space is about 900 to 1,000 companies. It, it, the, the industry itself is broader, but you know, I think we have the marquee names that are, are really sort of here. And, and I, I say 900 to 1,000 because it's really amazing how fast the, uh, particularly since the onset of the pandemic, how fast the mergers and acquisition churn has been, right? Right. So you are constantly seeing a a look from our large biotechnology companies, names that you've heard of like Amgen, Genentech, Pfizer, uh, looking to in-license or even grab some of these small cutting-edge biotechnology companies because they have so much interesting research. And so the scope of the smaller companies really wanes, but I'll, I'll get just to put it into perspective, you know, if you, if you look at only the chunk of biotech companies that have a product on the market, it's uh, often confused as this extraordinarily profitable industry. And now there are a number of companies that have profits, but 80% of our member companies who have a product on the market have negative net income and have never turned a profit. It's a tremendously challenging business, but it's a very rewarding one because of the opportunities that exist in all of the unmet medical needs. Sure. And 7%, there was research from you guys in 2016 that looked at over 9,000 clinical trials. Yeah. It was an amazing piece of research. And it showed that only 
only 7% of the companies actually uh, get to market. So 93% yeah. failure rate. Yeah. And, and that's even once they get in the clinic, 93%. Right. For those companies that don't even get in the clinic. So when you think about the animal molecule space, 99% of those projects <laughs> never make it. And it's a highly resource intensive in, uh, industry. You know, you often hear about the, the, the tough study that gets updated every couple of years that looks at, uh, you know, bringing a drug from bench to bedside. In other words, from the clinic all the way out is in the, is in the nature of $2 billion for development space. And really what's amazing is that people focus only on that piece and don't account for the fact that there were probably 10 to 12 programs that got halfway invested and failed. Yeah. And companies have this extraordinary run rate of cash, uh, particularly in the first five to 10 years of their buildup, because it's just unbelievable how expensive these products are to make. But they're life-changing if they can be harnessed and brought out to the right space. Picking up on what you were talking about, mergers and acquisitions, it, we did some work with you on the HR3 bill, which is not part of Build Back Better. Obviously, there's a pricing legislation, which we'll get to. But in the work we did, we found that 70% of global assets now are being developed in the United States. So at any time now, 70% of the drugs that come to market have, mm -hmm. have an American purview. If we look at Q1 of 2020 before COVID hit, 80% of all the listings on NASDAQ were biotech companies. Well, a lot of those are international companies are relocating to the United States too. Why is the U.S. now so dominant in the biotech space? Yeah, I think there's a number of, uh, of reasons for that. One is that this is where the capital is, right? So venture investment has become this almost... You, you can't get around it if you're going to be a small biotech company. That's very difficult to raise the initial funding. And the venture community in the United States is both large and willing to take these risky bets. So just to put it into perspective, in 2020, uh, the small emerging biotech companies in the healthcare space benefited from almost $18 billion in venture investment. Almost all of that was here in the United States. And the, the, the sort of longer answer to that is because the United States market, the healthcare market, is the only one that rewards innovation. Uh, we have really sort of bifurcated the world into a two different types of healthcare systems. You have socialized medicine, which is discussed as the panacea for patients. In, in some sense, it's probably very good for patients and uh, the hospital setting and in the physician setting because of the way the rigor is put around it. But the problem is, is that it doesn't, it isn't set up to reward innovation. It isn't set up to ensure that companies that are benefiting from the 17 to $18 billion annually in venture investment are able to reward those investors for the early bets. And so you're seeing a, a, a situation where the vast majority of the medicines in the uh, coming out of the biotech companies, they want to be in the United States marketplace because we're going to, one, ensure that there's a reward for that investment, but two, we're going to ensure it gets to the patients that need it. You know, I saw a study recently that, that talked about Greece as sort of an example. Um, and if you looked at all of the cancer approvals over the past 15 years, the Greeks in their socialized medicine system them had access to 32% of them, right. whereas the United States patients had access to about 95% of them. And my guess is that 5% has to do with some products coming off the market or better products coming on right. uh, that sort of outcompete. And so we get access in the United States healthcare system to new medicines faster and more equitably, whereas overseas really the way to get access to some of these cutting edge medicines is to be rich and come to the United States right. and pay for it on your own. And we just did research for which you guys are taking part where we looked at where Europe was 20 years ago compared to the United States and where it is now. And we're seeing over a 75% drop in pricing compared to the United States. Now, people may think that's great, but what we're also seeing then is enormous drops in venture capital, yeah. enormous drops. I mean, it guts the infrastructure, enormous drops in patent creation, enormous drops in uh, late stage investment. It just doesn't exist in Europe now and everything's coming to the U.S. Obviously, the pressure on pricing we're seeing in the United States is coming from the fact that a lot of these other countries, Europe, um, Japan on a certain level starting to pursue this pathway. You know, they're trying to lower prices. And in many ways, we see that the U.S. taxpayers on the hook for all of this great innovation that's going on, certainly, which is being driven here in the U.S. You know, the Trump administration actually addressed this in an executive order, which you mentioned earlier, was shut down. But now we're looking at negotiated pricing as part of the Biden's legislation, Build Back Better, which is the idea that Medicare is going to be able to negotiate prices. Why do you think 
the prices have gotten so far apart. You know, we're talking 75, 77% differences in a basket of, you know, standard meat and potatoes, cardiovascular drugs. Why are they so far apart between the United States and Europe right now? Yeah, there's, there's two sort of principal reasons. One is uh, the desire to limit access significantly as a result of getting the lower prices. So in the European countries, they embark upon this negotiation process whereby they, they don't really negotiate. They set an, an upper limit. They set a maximum access price based on some sort of a health te- technology assessment that, that spits out what they think is the maximum price they will pay for effectiveness. And they're more than willing to forego patients having access to that medicine if they can't meet on an agreed, agreeable term. That happens all the time. Here in the United States, we're less willing to deprive patients of life-saving medicines uh, and as a result, we don't embark upon that kind of negotiation. Now, Medicare gets the benefit of all of the public sector negotiation prices because the price Medicare pays, the price Medicaid pays, um, depending on what price you look at, because our government is never set, is never content with just one price. There are about sure. 18 different federally mandated prices that have to be accounted for uh, by the time you get to a Part D or a Part B product pricing. Um, the government gets the benefit of all of that. Patients get access to all of that. And so we have this system where it seems like the government or the private sector is paying more uh, for medicines, but there really are trade-offs, right? We always talk about that in an economic theory, right? The idea of trade-offs, the trade-offs that the European countries are willing to accept, which is, for instance, still trying to determine whether or not patients with CF are going to get access to basically curative therapy for cystic fibrosis over Europe, where kids and young adults here in the United States have had access to that for several years, right? That's a trade-off that we have heretofore been willing to make. Um, Now, as a result, you see a number of negative press counts out there saying that there is a pricing differential and we are not getting a benefit for that price. I would, I would argue that the reverse is true. We are getting the benefit of robust access for the prices that we are paying. Now, could the Medicare program do better on the margins? I'm not entirely sure. We haven't really explored that, although there are a number of demonstration programs being looked at to see about whether Medicare can get a lower price on some of these drugs that have aged themselves out of being, quote, innovative. The other difference here is the fact that we have a very imperfect supply chain for medicines in the United States. There are hands that touch that product all the way from the manufacturer to the time it's dispensed to the patient, either the hospital or the pharmacy, which just in the American capitalist system we have, all of them mark it up, right? right? And so drug pricing, as far as like, are we paying more than Europe? I, I would ask, well, at what point are you looking at that, right? We often see reports that hospitals buy Part B, Part B is in boy drugs, and they mark it up four to 500% before that product is then ultimately charged to an insurer or a patient who's a cash pay patient. Well, yeah, right? Of course, we're paying more than Medicare if the hospital's allowed to mark up 500% from that price. And at the same time, you know, there was just a, rep- a report in Axios this morning that sort of looked at the opacity of the corporate pharmaceutical benefit manager programs, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that's, and the yeah, question no being, are, you know, every major industry company in the in the private sector is in one way paying one of the three pharmacy benefit managers uh, to manage their pharmaceutical benefit. And the question is, are they getting a better deal? And the answer is, we have no idea because there's absolutely no transparency into the pricing being negotiated by those PBMs. Yeah, I mean, the PBM issue, uh, you probably saw it. We did a stat article where we looked specifically at insulin because, you know, insulin prices are, you know, have gone nuts. Yes. And what was, what was really intriguing is, you know, Medicare is roughly, depending on which how you slice it 50 to 60 percent of the volume of drugs maybe 70 percent in some in some slices if you looked at the amount that medicare was charging for insulin on their books but then what was ending up in the balance sheet of that company the number on the balance sheet of the company was actually lower than the total medicare yeah billable which means wait a minute there's some leakage here there's you know there's a huge amount of money that's going somewhere that's not ending up on the balance sheet of the company but yet that's being charged or at least quantified to the taxpayer where the heck is that 2 billion 3 billion dollars going for that insulin product and the only place we could say it's it's got to be ending up in the bank account of the PBM that's know? exactly <laughs> right and not only that but you know oftentimes if you read the front page of any local newspaper when they talk about drug pricing, the, the oftentimes they're not referring to the price of the drug. They're referring to the, pay, to, to the cost to the patient when he or she goes to the pharmacy counter to pick it up. And 
oftentimes, you know, we talked a little bit about rebates, you know, many times you have insurance programs that, that base a patient's cost sharing on the quote, gross price of the drug. So the list price of the drug, when in reality, nobody's paying that price except the patient. So right. his or her insurance company is reimbursing the manufacturer 50, 60, 70% less in that list price, but then the insurer is charging the patient on the gross price of the medicine. And so that's what relates to these idea of like, oh my gosh, I'm paying $1,000 out of pocket, which is my 20% coinsurance, which is a common coinsurance metric, right? 20%. Um, but, and, and we have specific examples that we've been able to show where the insurer actually paid less for the drug than the patient paid out of pocket. And that yeah. was supposed to be the patient's 20% coinsurance. Yeah, and that's supposed to come back to the patient and it doesn't. It doesn't. One of the other things we're seeing, like in France now, in oncology products, we're seeing 530 days average delay in Spain, 300 days. So even when they approve a drug, it's taking a year or more. So what it looks like is they're putting in, essentially, they're, they're pricing down over time. They're reducing their cost by you know delaying access. If we were to put in similar sort of price controls in Europe, do you think we end up with delays? What do you think the impact would be specifically on your membership? Yeah, I think what you'd see is this short-term great press that prices for patients have come down. And, and I'm, I'm dubious as to whether or not that would be the actual effect, but I think there'd be ways for the media to spin that short-term prices for patients would come down. But I think what would happen is you would start to see an erosion, just like we have in Europe, into new innovative research and development. And that would, over time, compound itself into less medicines making it uh, across the finish line and becoming approved. And so what I think you'd see is 10, 15 years out, a basic formulary in a corporate space that looked exactly like it does today. With and, no in more, other words, with, with no, no more, more innovation or, yeah. or, or some marginal innovation whereby the target was too good to look, to, to overlook, right? Like we, we talk a lot about um, population-wide public health. So, you know, you could see some innovation in the next pandemic where a vaccine that needs to be widely targeted to a population. But I think you would see far less innovation in those uh, genetically rare diseases. And don't, don't get me wrong, right? Rare disease research is vital. One in 10 Americans is, is, is affected on a daily basis by a rare disease that has no treatment today, right? And there are societal costs as well as personal costs associated with that. And what one of the things that we value in the innovation ecosystem here in the United States is trying to account for getting those medicines to the patients that are often overlooked, right? A thousand patients, 15,000 patients, even, I mean, you think about the orphan drug space, that, that law is targeted at ensuring research research for drugs that affect less than 200,000 people a year. That's a big number in, in, in a micro space. But when you think about the 350 million Americans, right, it's a tiny, it's a drop in the bucket, right? So I think you will start to see an erosion of research development because w one thing I've learned doing this for a long time is that venture capital is extraordinarily fungible, right? Oh, God, yes. They are looking to net present value 10 years of investing or five years of investing and put some sort of a uh, evaluation on what on what they should be looking into an, in, into a new company because they have to justify that to their limited partners. Why are we putting in $100,000? Why are we putting $100 million in this company? They, they will so quickly pivot to other technologies, apps, uh, the tech space is just huge. And so I just, and, and I've spoken to a number of investors saying, if you start putting draconian price controls on my product, it completely changes the net present value of all of my investment decisions. And in many cases, because of that uncertainty of whether or not a particular product is going to be targeted at some time in the future, it, it, it just lessens my desire uh, to be able to justify that to my limited partner pool. And I'm going to invest in medical devices, or I'm going to invest in, look, I mean, there's so much innovation in healthcare nowadays, right? We have companies that have prescription apps to treat things like post-traumatic stress disorder that require so much less in terms of investment, but are just as promising when you think about all of our veterans that are coming back and the, and the problem we have in post-traumatic stress. Like, why wouldn't you want to look at targeting innovation there rather than trying to deal with some sort of a, because remember, cancer is really a rare disease. There's no such thing as mm -hmm. big cancer. It's small. The next set of prostate cancer, the next set of, of, of kidney cancer, 
answer, right? It's easier to look at app-based or web-based development. And that, that I think is the unfortunate, I think that is the unfortunate reality that we would face if we have a very large price control move here. And it's completely ignored by the media and the politicians the, who are talking about There's this. a misnomer that I think a lot of people who think, well, we'll just lower prices. And then what we'll get is everyone focusing on Alzheimer's or everyone focusing on Duchenne muscular dystrophy, when in fact, the risk of those assets is so high. And there's been so many failures, what, 280 failures and counting and uh, Alzheimer's disease now, with the exception of a couple of the drugs that have come out recently. But, but the reality is there's been very, very few approved therapies. And there's this belief that, well, everyone will just go then where they can make the most money. When in fact, the risk profile goes completely out the window. What we're going to end up with is back in is 1989, 1988, with a lot of cardiovascular drugs and a lot of big indications and everyone running into those. We'll end up with more me too's, it seems. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, um, you know, economics are hard to refute, right? There was a period of time where we didn't have FDA-mandated drug shortage lists, right? FDA didn't really track it. They didn't account for it. And really, the result of needing to have the drug shortages tracking that FDA does now was because the generic market had consolidated so much because pricing had gotten so low that they were exiting the market. And the shortages, a lot of the early shortages were predicated on the fact that nobody wanted to make the drugs anymore because they couldn't make any money. So we have to be cognizant of the trade-offs that we are making when we talk about pharmaceutical policy in the United States, right? And, and, and think about the complexities here, right? You mentioned Alzheimer's. You know, I saw a statistic at one point that $900 billion a year in economic costs are associated with treating Alzheimer's in the United States. We don't ever put that valuation into a model to assess, well, what should the price be for any... Let's say we can delay... Um, that the, the move from mild cognitive decline to moderate cognitive decline by five years, right? You might be able to keep someone in the workforce for five years. Like the economic cost of the United to the system would be demonstrably lower, but we don't ever capture that in drug pricing models because no one wants to acknowledge that drugs can actually save money on right. other things. Well, think about the big debate that occurred around Gilead's drug for hepatitis C. Yeah. You know, everyone said, well, it's the $80,000 pill. It's, it's ridiculously expensive. I've had politicians in Europe tell me it's immoral. Yeah. And, but yet no one looked at the long-term pathway if you didn't use that drug, which was well over $200,000 when you looked at the risk for liver transplant. Yeah. So you're actually saving today $120,000 in real terms for every patient that comes through the pathway. But again, no one looks at it that way. And not only that, but people ignored the fact that that initial pricing flexibility that Gilead got in getting that market spurred an unprecedented an amount of development that okay. resulted in what four additional approvals that have basically commoditized that product because of the competition. And so I don't think there is anybody paying anywhere close to a thousand dollars a pill for a course of treatment now. And it was because of that pricing flexibility that does that that showed the VC community there was a market right. to go there, and they really turned on investment, and the and the, the small biotechs really turned on investment. And now you have a really crowded class, quite frankly, um, that that doesn't have any pricing really any long-term pricing issues. Well, well, J&J had to cut a drug that worked really well. I was at the presentation where the data was released. I'm like, wow, that's great. It's like 78% effective. Well, what do you do when you're up against 98% effectiveness? You know, yeah, that's the problem. It it is interesting to look at those economic impacts. I mean, not to bring up what is a a, a sore topical subject in the press right now, but Alzheimer's, you know, there was a treatment approved recently by FDA that was the subject of some scorn in the press. But um, if you look at the investment dollars being put into amyloid plaque targeting products, they're significant, right? And so the hope would be that this would be a trailblazer for tons of follow-on investment into a space that has otherwise been the subject of nothing but failure over the past 20 years, right? And we need that, right? If you were to have a market like Europe where a product like that came out and it was frankly, actually, I think the case is that it's not going to be approved in Europe, or at least the the member states of of the EU are going to have some additional authority over that, right? What VC looks at that class and says, that's where I want to invest my next dollar, right? It's not worth it. Um, And so we fail to look at the drug space as an ecosystem that innovation is built upon sort of successes and failures of precursor products. And that's a really important point, right? I mean, I, I think in a large case, you know, the hospitals and the surgery centers get uh, ignored because they don't have sort of a lot of these gr- groundbreaking innovations in anything. But 
Wall Street Journal does a, an article every year where it looks at the inflation of prices for knee surgeries and back revisions, and that goes up every year, right? Drug prices on whole have gone down every month for the past 29 months, right? Yeah. The net price to the system for drug pricing because our drugs go generic, right? A lot of them do. Um, you know, 85 to 90%, depending on whose statistics you look at, of the drugs prescribed in the doctor's office today are generic drugs. Yeah. All of those needed an innovator. Yeah. You don't start off as generic. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So picking up on that, if we look at the, the pricing debate that's going on in the U.S. again, it's interesting to me, you know, if we look statistically at the drugs that have been coming to market, we know that California alone over the last 10, 15 years, according to our own research, is responsible, depending on the year, between 25 and 35% of the approvals. Massachusetts come, comes in a couple points lower than that, but also in the basically the running. If you take Massachusetts and California, you're, you're almost at 50% of all global drugs that are approved. It's interesting to me that the politicians who are most behind these pricing bills and these regulations that have been thrown out for approval and now what we have with the Build Back Better plan are coming from California, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, the ones that in many ways have the most to lose. Why do you think those states in particular are willing to put their biotech at risk? Why, why is that? Yeah, I think it's an unfortunate reality of the political system that we live in today, which is to say that the news cycle is almost insurmountable in its coverage of anti-drug rhetoric and the politicians are almost mandated to go along with that right speaking out against or providing just some basic facts to counter the vast majority of the articles that show up in the washington post or the um you know up in the in, in boston or or you know the tribune it takes a lot of courage uh, which many of these members do have if they want to deploy it. Uh, Congressman Scott Peters is a good example for that. He's been a champion for the biotech companies in his industry to say, or in his district to say, look, we're going to cut through all of the garbage that's being pressed. And I recognize that perhaps there has to be congressional action that does something to tame the, the broader narrative on drug pricing, but we're going to need to do it in a smarter way that doesn't detract from the you know 1.7 to 1.8 million jobs that the that this industry directly attributes to the economy in these two states. But I think the problem for for the broader swath of the politicians, uh, particularly in Massachusetts, who don't want to stand up for the industries. Uh, in their state is that the countervailing narrative in the political press is better for them, right? And right. so many, and this is a, an unfortunate reality of the political process in the United States, it's not local anymore. You know, Senate races are run nationally at this yeah. point. I mean, if you look at, you know, as an example, uh, the, the race that was in Texas against Ted Cruz in the past, I think the vast majority of the fundraising for Beto O'Rourke came outside of Texas, yeah. right? It's a national election at this point, and they're just unfortunately pulled in that space. You, you know, I feel bad um, for members trying to represent their districts now because, I mean, you look at even the bipartisan infrastructure bill that got passed, there were a number of members in the Republican side of the aisle that were demonized for voting for that, all of which had really direct financial positives for their districts, right? Right. It's hard uh, in, in the environment today, I think. And, and that creates problems, I think, long-term for the country because we are looking at national narratives that are sort of spurned out by the media. Um, and we aren't allowed to have an adult conversation about, again, going back to this economic term of trade-offs, right? Like, yeah, we could do X, but let's talk about Y and Z that would be the direct result of doing that. Are we willing to to do that, right? If you think about polling for Medicare negotiation, the general question asked in a poll uh, about should Medicare directly negotiate drugs is bipartisanly favorable, right? right. 80 to 90% of the respondents say yes. When you ask them the follow-up question of would you be willing to forego future treatments or to have less access to drugs, that poll changes Oh, completely. Incredibly. Yeah, it does. 180 right. degrees. Yeah. And, and part of the pivot that the politicians then say is, well, it's not really the private sector. You guys are skimming the cream. It's the NIH that really does the bulk of the work. Now, we looked at a small sample of 24,000 NIH grants um, over you know 30 years of funding, literally, um, an enormous amount of work. And then we looked at the total financial contributions and statistical probability of market entry. And we found that overwhelmingly, Yes, there was a couple billion dollars that came for 41 assets that came to clinical research and 18 that were approved, but it was, you know, 60, depending on when you cut off the line, was it FDA approval or life cycle approval up through uh, expiration of patent? You know, that's either 
64 or $94 billion of private market funding that came in. And there was no statistical correlation from the NIH for market approval. And it was all laid on yeah. basically everything without the private market, you don't get marketing approval. In fact, when the NIH gives more money, the statistical probability drops. Yeah. Yet people don't want to address this. Well, why, where is this coming from that the idea that we can get rid of the private sector and everything will just be hunky dory and, and there won't be an issue? Yeah, you know, this is a question I get asked a lot. You know, one of my favorite numbers that I, I give in speeches now when I talk to people comes from your study, right? You know, there were the 18 products that you identified that actually made it to approval, and then you looked at the life cycle of those drugs. And only four and made money. <laughs> yeah, not only did only four make money, but private sector investment in those 18 molecules totaled just shy of $45 billion. And NIH investment in those 18 molecules was $660 million, yeah. I think. And a million for, for NIH, billion for, for private sector investment. And that just shows the disparity uh, in, in research funding that is necessary to get a product. But down. here's the problem for the average person who's out there, you know, making 60, 70, 80 grand a year working yeah. a job. You know, you say, well, this drug got a quarter million dollars from the NIH. It got $2 million from the Sounds NIH. Sounds like a lot, right? It got a billion dollars from the NIH. And you think, holy cow, that should be free. Mm -hmm. And then you don't realize the average drug in our sample 50-50 probability in our logistic regression. In other words, you know, we looked at the probability of market entry and then looked at the financing. Five billion is the coin flip. So you yeah. needed to have five billion skin in the game of five billion dollars to have a 50-50 probability of market entry. Yeah, and, and it's really un unbelievable too because you're right. I mean, the scale of drug development dollars is hard for people to understand. And I think that is the biggest challenge the industry continues to face is to substantiate for the average American why their numbers look like they do. Yeah. And we, and I'll just acknowledge, I mean, I've been doing this for over 10 years and we do not do a good job because I always, I, I joke about this with my colleagues and, and, and really it shouldn't be a joke, but we talk about it like our elevator speech is not great, right? But the elevator speech from some of the progressives uh, in the House and the Senate that are trying to push this narrative of drug pricing is if Medicare negotiates prices, you will have cheaper drugs. And they don't ever have to account for all of the unintended consequences or the intended consequences that would result from that. Whereas on our side of the house, you're trying to say this idea of like, okay, but those 18 assets, right? $670 million of NIH investment. People are like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. And then you're like, but $44 million or $44 billion, billion yeah. of private sector investment in those same 18 assets to get that those products to the market. And, and again, they, if you go through all the way to the end of the life cycle and extra investments and product right. extensions and mergers and acquisitions and other things that go, I mean, you're up to 90 billion. Right. Actually, and, 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 and then also talking about this idea of, you know, these companies have a constant fight to provide free product to patients that don't have insurance to yeah. negotiate deals, to deal with the, the cost of complying as a pharmaceutical company with all of the rules and regulations that are associated with Medicare and Medicaid is in my view, incalculable, <laughs> but just if you think about going from a small biotech company that's going to get your first product to market and your goal is to bring that product to the market on your own and commercialize it, and you have like two lawyers in the company, it's like you're going to be buried the day, the day yeah. you try and get Medicare coverage, right? Yeah. It's unbelievable when you think about all of the laws that are associated with trying to properly keep your product in the market. The cost of compliance is outrageous. You know, and, and I come from a background when I was a little... Uh, you know, baby lawyer out of law school and working for a large farm uh, for a large law firm that did a lot of pharmaceutical work. And, you know, it's unbelievable how many lawyers just law firms have us dedicated to doing pricing compliance and disclosure compliance and state reporting, uh, Medicaid reporting. And so it's just not so easy to look at the marginal cost of products, right? That's, that's a lot of what's happening in the sure. COVID space right now, the marginal cost. Um, because it's a convenient economic theory that we should be pricing drugs in the marginal cost plus a markup. But that it doesn't account for all of the back-end infrastructure that's necessary to keep that marginal cost what it is. Right. Right. It's not commonly factored into that discussion. Well, and the joke I always like to tell people about, you know, the marginal cost of a product, it's, you know, Hemingway wasn't compensated on the cost per page to print a copy of For Whom the Bell Tolls. Right. That's not the value of Hemingway's book. Right. You know, the intellectual property is what you're paying for. Exactly right. One of the pivots, again, that the, you know, a lot of the political class is throwing at this 
this is, well, this is okay. We'll just fully fund NIH more. And so they have this, what they're calling ARPA-H, yeah. modeled on DARPA, the very successful military R&D program. There's no question about that. It is, has been hugely successful. But now they're going to do a healthcare, a DARPA for healthcare called ARPA-H. The initial sum was $6 billion. And again, I think that probably to the unlearned, that sounds like, hey, wow, that's a whole lot of money. It's actually one or two clinical trials, but we'll leave that aside. Okay, now it's $3 billion in the current plan that's currently being rolled out, and it has bipartisan support. What do you think is going to be the end result of an ARPA-H and $3 billion of total congressional yeah, investment per year? My sense is it will do very little to broaden the landscape for um, overall products becoming to the market. Look, the NIH does basic science very well. There's no agency in the government, I think, that does as well with the basic scientific research as the NIH does. But to put it into perspective, right, even at $6 billion, you know, the average R&D budget on an annual basis of the bio, biotech industry is close to $200 billion. That's annually, right? Um, you know, there are 3,200 emerging biotech companies right now working on over 8,500 active projects, right? And as you said, every one of those, when it gets into the clinic, is an expensive proposition. It's either expensive because FDA requires you to have a 30 to 90,000 patient enrolled placebo clinical trial where you have a broad-based population, or the alternative is you're trying to figure out how to ethically and effectively do a clinical trial in an orphan population where these patients are already sick, they can't really be put on a placebo versus a promising drug, and, and the cost of compliance of doing these smaller trials is very high. So, you know, my sense is ultimately um, this will just be an increase of the NIH budget by about $3 billion. Right. I think that's very good. We need the NIH to be focusing on things like antimicrobial resistance research, right? Areas that are truly broken markets, right? We haven't developed a new anti-infective in the United States or antibiotic in the United States in almost 40 years. There's no market for them. Because it's a product that no one will prescribe unless they absolutely have to. And so how do you justify to your limited partner pool as a VC investing $100 million, $200 million, $300 million into a product that if it gets approved, no one will use? Right. Right. And it sits on a shelf. And it sits on a shelf. Very important, right? Superbug resistance is becoming a huge problem. We're looking at 10 million individuals dying from antibiotic resistance infections in the next, uh, you know, annually by 2050, right? If we can't do anything, it's a huge unreported pandemic that's ongoing. You know, 700 to 800,000 people die annually right now from antibiotic resistance infections just in the hospital. And there is no... Uh, realist. And that's where, like, if, if I if I had a magic wand and they said $3 billion to NIH, I'd say, figure out how to fix this problem, yeah. right? Because the market is too broken, right? I don't know how we privatize AMR unless we start thinking about government interventions like pull-through incentives, right? Operation Warp Speed is actually an interesting discussion to have in the, in the antibiotic space where the NIH and the government could play a really big role in, a, in rewarding. We guarantee to, we guarantee a reward purchase. a certain amount of money exactly. if you guys hit the target. Right. Now, obviously, this, this brings up a couple of points because mRNA, one of the key points, the reason why mRNA was developed, both was as a cancer vector and as well as an antimicrobial. And these are possibilities that yeah. are still there. If we look at the COVID pathway, quote unquote, that came in under Warp Speed, Essentially, by February, March, we knew we had a problem of 2020. By November, we were already talking about getting drugs in the market. That's eight months. Yeah. That was the pathway. So we know we can do it in eight months. A lot of the drugs now are taking 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Eight months, 10 years. That's a heck of a lot of cost when we talk about, you know, the cost of developing a drug. Let's not, let's not kid ourselves. Nine years of funding on a failed therapy is huge. Mm -hmm. Is, the poss is there a possibility that this becomes the standard pathway? Are we going to start doing more of this? As you mentioned, AMR setting up a, uh, a target saying we'll do this, and then you have accelerated everything, essentially, and everything gets thrown at it, and then boom, you have a product, nine months. Yeah, I would hope that the government takes learnings from the Operation Warp Speed program and, and really operationalizes them in future sort of pandemic fights or epidemic fights where we need to make a sort of all hands wartime style investment. I would say, our, I would posit that AMR is a really good example of some, of some sort of a low hanging fruit that the government can look at the op Operation Warp Speed infrastructure and say, how do we do this in a way that does, 
that, that moves fast, right? You, you made a good point. The average vaccine on, on average takes about 10 years to develop from bench to bedside. I think the fastest we've ever developed a vaccine was for mumps. It took about four years, right? Yeah, the, but then uh, remember, what the, the was roll, a, yeah. remember what the rollout was like. Right. I mean, there were a lot of problems with exactly. that product. You know? and, and even there, right, could you imagine living in March 2020 uh, again, where the realistic opportunity is at best four years, you're going to get shots in the arms, right? So like that would have been incalculable in terms of loss of economic activity, loss of life over, over the, the they're know, talking about retooling Omicron in a hundred days and yeah, having it exactly. available. <laughs> well, and, and they've already done that right for Delta and for beta, uh, the variants of concern that came out, right. And that became, it, it became obvious later on in the Delta wave that a new targeted vaccine wasn't going to be necessary because the existing vaccines were worked, but they already had one, right. Yeah. They were able to do that so quickly because of that. But I, I think there's two things that operation warp speed did really well that we should be, um, working on in the future one uh, like if you if you use amr as a, as a as a corollary opportunity for an operation worksheet it's creating the market in the back end so you know what people often ignore about operation warp speed is that for many of uh, the vaccines that are on the market, the government didn't directly invest in the development of those. What the government did, and this is a, a, you know an example in the Pfizer space, is they guaranteed purchase of a certain quantity of vaccines at the end. Pfizer, for instance, did all that research at risk, right? So they got guaranteed purchase if they succeeded. They actually had tremendous downside if they failed. I um, was on, you know, I, I live in Belgium, and I and I was flying. I fly United Airlines, the direct flight from Brussels to Washington. You know, they have a lot of manufacturing in Belgium. Yeah. There was one flight, there were three of us on the plane. Well, how are you guys affording to fly? Oh, it's full of vaccine. The, yeah. the, the belly is full of vaccine. We're, we're bringing all the vaccine waiting for the approval. This was middle of October. They were flying millions and millions of right. doses before the FDA approval. Pfizer was rolling the dice big big before they had FDA approval. Now they knew we did a webinar with Michael Dalston, the chief science officer who was in charge of the vaccine program on September 29th for the Gastein program. And he dropped the mic and said, yeah, we just successfully did our second dose in 30,000 people. The results are good. So anybody who wasn't buying Pfizer on September 29th, <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, it was public at that point that you know, he wouldn't have said that if he'd known the data wasn't a home run. Yeah. But yeah, you were right. They, they were in production well before the launch. And, and that was, you know, and, and look, like each company approached that differently. You know, uh, you know, people like to make a bad example out of Moderna. I think it's completely unwarranted for all of the work that they've done, but they didn't have the infrastructure Pfizer did, right? Pfizer was able to do that at risk because of the infrastructure they developed with a very strong portfolio over the past, what, 80 years? Yes. Um, and so that was a, you know, Operation Warp Speed, I think, was a very unique plug-and-play public-private partnership that provided assets necessary depending on where a company was. And I think AMR is a good example. The other thing Warp Speed did really well that I think is something that we hope could be applied long-term to drug discovery is it, it forced the government to get on the same page with the competing agencies and to be aligned and to move with swiftness. Not that they did anything to cut corners, but they were forced to be operationally efficient. And I'm not trying to knock on the government. The FDA has a really big mandate. They regulate. They regulate one in twelve dollars of the American economy, right? It's a big. <laughs> it's a big mandate. Um, but you know, oftentimes they they can get saddled with that same government bureaucracy that sort of pervades a lot of the agencies. And I think warp speed was the shot in the arm to say, look, we're going to uh, we're going to approach this like a McKinsey consultant. We're going to put deliverables in place and milestones in place. And you, FDA, have to be on board with that, right? And it moved things very efficiently through it, the process. The FDA stopped being adversarial and started being exactly. part of the process. They were trying to figure out ways. How do we help you enroll meaningfully diverse clinical trials? How do we help you get trial sites, or even if we have to do remote patient monitoring, how do we get that stand stand up? You know that process stand up. It's something that the industry has been pushing FDA to do for some time. And I think um, when we look back on this, and and someone does a hot wash of the entire COVID pr program, which I'm sure everybody will do, right. you know, I think one of the things we will see is that the COVID pandemic, that first year of the pandemic, forced innovation within the agency by ten years. Right, something that would have otherwise taken the agency ten years to get where it needed to be, it was all sort of done in about a nine-month period, and I think that's for the benefit of everybody. And that winds us back to the initial question: Then, do we see us going back to the status quo, or is this permanently changed? Now? I think there are aspects that are 
permanently changed. I worry um, that, you know, there is this idea of defaulting to the status quo ante when people get uh, comfortable, like if the pandemic, let's say it dies down and there's this world where things start to get back much more to normal. You worry about that sort of creep back into the old comfortable days of bureaucratic look. But I do think there were a number of guidances that the agency released. Um, there was a very big push to ensure that clinical trial, you know, clinical trial diversity is a really important metric that was often overlooked in the past. Like, were we doing clinical trials in the population actually affected by right. the disease most specifically? And oftentimes we found that that wasn't the case, right? And the FDA had to do a big push into releasing guidance on how to do, how to enroll diverse and participant focused clinical trials. I think that's an area we will never go back to, right? I think we are in a great new era of trying to make sure that not only are we targeting clinical development to the patients and the populations that are most profoundly affected by it, but two, how do we get the patient's voice involved in that process, right? That was not really something that was necessary, I think, for the development of these COVID vaccines, getting the patient voice right, because everybody needed this vaccine. But it, it put this harmonized focus between the industry and the agency to start thinking about, right? The COVID therapeutics that are coming out right now are, are a fairly good example. It probably not a perfect prover of my point, but like, look, there was always going to be a population in the United States that was not going to get vaccinated. Like, I think we were fooling ourselves to think we were ever going to get 100% vaccination. It just wasn't going to happen. And so looking scientifically at how do we get this pandemic tamped down, it was very clear going into 2021 that having adequate treatment for, for COVID for a patient population that wasn't going to be vaccinated was a real necessity, right? Sure. So, you know, uh, you know, you have two therapeutics um, of varying degrees of efficacy that will be built upon, by the way. Sure, of course. You know, going back to our earlier point, like these are two camel's nose under the tent that will engender far more robust research into how do we have a daily pill that can be prophylactic against COVID because we're just never going to get to the point of 100% vaccination. Yeah, but a lot of the rhetoric around this has been, you know, people that don't want to get vaccinated or rubes or, you yeah. know, or whatever. And what's actually interesting, MIT did a study and they actually went into some of the Facebook chat rooms surreptitiously to see how these people were conversing and what it was actually, they were shocked. It's like, wow, this is a debate around the data. Yeah. People are actually discussing the data and benefit risk. And but not everybody who doesn't want to get vaccinated is some stupid rube, you know? <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I mean, it, and we're, we're sort of entering that phase of the pandemic where I think not only misinformation, but to your point, there is almost too much information um, uncertain of the vaccines. And I see it too. I mean, you know, when, when my kids got vaccinated and we talked to people in the class and they're trying to have an incentive-based approach at the school, um, well, you know, I think that that's an important look that, you know, that this country is going to have to make, right? Like, as we have more availability for COVID, like, we're going to have to, I think, start evolving some of our thinking on this, because while I think vaccines are the right way to go, I realize that there are people that disagree with me. And there, there might even be, you know, there's probably people that are smarter than me and data that can that can show and you're right. So I think, we as an industry, bringing this back to bio, right, we're starting to create an ecosystem of layers of targeted therapies, right? Because we recognized, and by we, I mean, I don't do any of the science, but I represent a lot of those companies, that there was going to be a need for things other than just vaccines. Like it was very clear sure. getting through the Trump administration into the Biden administration that it, did, it wasn't going to take a change in who was sitting at the resolute desk for the, the people that were hold us on vaccines to, to suddenly get vaccinated. We were going to need this layered approach. And because we have such a good, robust ecosystem for investment and research in the United States, you know, it's no surprise that two of the cutting edge therapies coming out for COVID that are not vaccine related are coming out of U.S.-based companies. And the ones that tried to be um, developed that weren't U.S.-based uh, failed. Exactly. And, you know, I don't want to be I don't want to be jingoistic about this, but, you know, there it's been not easy. And, and don't forget, you know, when Oxford was rolling out, say, we're going to have a vaccine here in six months. I can show you the news articles where you have European politicians. Great. It's a university vaccine. It'll be free. Yeah. Like Oxford University had the ability to start producing several billion doses of vaccine and distribute it, you know. And then when they cut the deal, it was like, well, why'd you cut the deal with Big Pharma? Right. It's like, well, you had to. Right. This is not possible. And it just kind of t winds us back to our main point. You, you can't do this without the private sector. Well, not only that, you have to think about what should the role of government be, right? I mean, last I checked, the government of the United States has not produced a vaccine, a pill, a therapeutic 
therapeutic for really anything. <laughs> um, but they have partnered very smartly with the private sector that is able to utilize, like there's utility to all these plants that are necessary to produce these things, right? Like at some point, we aren't going to need 16 billion COVID vaccines a year, I hope, right? And that capacity is going to have to be pivoted to something else. The government doesn't do a very good job of that, right? I mean, I look at the vacant government building that's been across from bio for the past 10 years that's still just sitting there vacant, right? It's a very large piece of property that, you know, the, the government doesn't do a very good job of that. And I think the private sector is uniquely suited for that. That's actually sort of one of the unfortunate top headlines that's coming more and more out about the industry is they're saying, look, we have to, you know, take the IP away from the vaccine manufacturers because they're not making it readily available for small and middle income or low and middle income countries to, to scale up manufacturing to get vaccines. First of all, that's completely untrue, right? There are over 300 manufacturing partnerships just amongst the three vaccine manufacturers who are approved here in the United States to deliver vaccines across the world, right? They're going to make 12 billion doses of vaccine here this year, 16 billion doses of vaccine here next year. I can tell you for a fact that, and I've seen this from a number of, of, of public health sources, that we're going to have we have enough vaccine for everybody who wants vaccine in right. the United States, right? Like, they, it is well, no and not surprise. Just, and not just the United States. Or not just the United States. Sorry, globally. 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 Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I misspoke there. We have enough vaccine. It's really, do we have the infrastructure to get those shots in the arm? And the answer is we don't. Well, um, and, and do people want it? What we've right. seen in South Africa, the problem in the situation in South Africa, was saying, well, we need to give um, IP to South Africa because they want vaccines. Right. As you, you know, mentioned earlier, you've got vaccines sitting in freezers right now that they can't even distribute. Exactly. That's right. And, and in fact, there were, there were a number of articles that have come out, come out over the past several weeks where they're saying a lot of these African countries are not ordering or slow ordering their doses because they have more than they can adequately deploy in the population. It's not a, a question of undersupply. It's a question of resources to get them in the arms. There was also a really good article this morning in the press where it talked about these new pills for, for COVID and how they could be game changing in low and middle income countries, except for the fact that they have to be provided after a positive test within a certain window. And almost none of these countries actually have the testing capacity right. to do that, right? So again, we're going back to this issue of we have innovated to the point where we have the necessary layers of treatment, but we have to you know, and I think that's interesting that right before you and I um, logged into this podcast, you know, the Biden administration released uh, a press release talking about how they're going to start investing money into building an infrastructure to vac to get to turn vaccines into vaccinations. I think that's exactly what we right. need to be focusing and on. And we right should now. have been focused on for well, a while. We, and we have, we have woefully <laughs> underinvested in that. Like, if you think about where we need to be deploying assets here. There's vaccines sitting in freezers everywhere. There's yeah. vaccines sitting in public health clinics everywhere. We have to get that last mile under control. And I think that's where I think it was a $400 million initial investment from the Biden administration, which I would hope would be matched by our European partners. Like we have to think about how do we, how do we deal with that next layer, right? How do we get testing stand stood up so that we can deploy all of these easy to take pills that perhaps for some reason, and I don't understand this, have less misinformation associated with sure. them than the vaccines. And I don't know if it's because people like the idea of taking a pill versus getting a shot. In it's early days too. give it time. Exactly right. <laughs> um, but I think that is really an area that the industry has been investing in heavily. Um, but that's the role. And, and going back to that ARPA-H question, I mean, that's where the government really plays a great role is how do we, in, how do we provide grants to the Oxfam Foundation and to COVAX and to the, to the, you know, medicine's patent pool to sort of operationalize actually getting this stuff sure. out in the populations. Biopharma has traditionally been 11 to 13% of the total cost of healthcare, and that's basically been rock solid for 25 years. That's yeah. not changed as a percentage. Meanwhile, we've seen hospital costs going up exponentially, you know, parabolically. I mean, they're just blowing up, and no one politically is giving them the sort of scrutiny that the drug companies are getting. Why, why are the hospital systems getting this free pass, essentially, when they're the ones driving 80 85% of the cost increases? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say the cynical person in me will say it's because there are 535 members of the U.S. Uh, House and Senate combined. Every single one of them has a major employer in their district that's a hospital. Um, it's an interesting and, point because UCLA Medical Center, I checked the data on this a couple of times in the past, UCLA Medical Center is the largest single-site employer in the city of Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right. And that's actually the case in a lot of cities where, particularly if you have a university hospital system, I think about Madison, Wisconsin, right, it's a good example. Like the university ho healthcare system and the university and the 
diaspora of all of that surrounding it is a huge jobs multiplier. Whereas, you know, the biotech industry in the in the Madison space, there's a number of really dynamic companies growing up out of the university system. And so the, the you know, the 800 pound gorilla still still is the university and the university healthcare system associated with it. So I do think that's one problem, right, is the fact that they tend to get a free pass because they're a huge jobs generator. And it's the the way they're funded is not as directly correlative to the way you could look at a pricing line and say, okay, prescription drugs, S. Hospitals kind of get reimbursed in all different kinds of way. It's spread out a little more. And so I think it's less in the face of any individual person writing about public health because, you know, hospitals oftentimes have their wholly owned cancer facilities that get reimbursed differently. Like no one looks at Medicare cost reports, let's be honest, right? That's the ultimate behind the scenes. Now we all like to well, do it. Well, because, I do, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's so much easier to look at a hospital as a multitude of cost centers, sure. right? Whereas, you know, the drug spend is one line and they do a very effective job of divorcing the way medicines are deployed in a, in a healthcare system from the outcomes that are produced, right? Less hospital days, less admissions. And so I just honestly think that it's it's really sad to say, I think hospitals are just more complicated and therefore they're harder to tackle. Um, and there's always the threat of job losses in a district. And that's the unfortunate reality um, for that. Uh, Regina Herzlinger wrote a great book on, you know, 10, 15 years ago now called Who Killed Healthcare? And she advocated sort of specialized treatment centers where, you know, this hospital focuses on liver transplants, this hospital focuses on cardiovascular disease. Do you ever think we'll get there? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think we are certainly getting into an area of aggressive vertical integration by the healthcare systems. Um, you know, if you look at um, the hospital systems recently that have been buying up oncology care clinics, you know, basically infusion seats because yeah. they offer just such an incredible reimbursement opportunity. And that's just, just no way around it, right? I mean, they're not buying them because of the capacity. They're buying them because of the access to the Medicare pricing benefits that they get. And they also get a percentage of the oncology drugs exactly. that they sell too. So right. they get compensated on the vertical, they get compensated on both sides of the balance sheet. And, and, and the other thing that's hard, and I don't know how we fight this, is that is the American workforce is changing. And I, I do actually see that I have a number of friends who are doctors. And, you know, it is really hard nowadays to get emerging doctors out of the medical schools and the residency programs to then say, like, they all want to work as hospitalists because the pay is better. The hours are better. The treatments, like healthcare is a tough industry to work in. Yeah. And so I actually don't have a good answer for that. But I do think that hospitals are facing this uphill battle now of how do we provide adequate round the clock care? We don't have a good answer for that. Now, you know, we're also in sort of a really bad place in certain rural hospitals that are also firing a lot of their healthcare professionals over vaccine mandates. I'm not going to comment on that other than to say, like, that's clearly a problem. It's not a macro level problem. Like when you look at how many, you know, I think that the, the latest report out of CMS was that 94% of all healthcare officials affected by that policy that went into effect at CMS about vaccine mandates were already vaccinated. But the, the, the vast majority of that 6% were left in rural healthcare centers, yeah. right, where there aren't, weren't a lot of alternatives. Like we're sitting here in the middle of Washington, D.C. I could throw a stone north, south, east, or west and hit a hospital, right? Like right. you have alternatives. But if you live in, you know, outside of one or two cities in West Virginia, you're talking about rural ambulatory surgery centers that are your only option, right? And if they're losing 6% of their workforce, that's a big problem because yeah. they don't have any alternatives and reserves. You're getting hit 28 different ways from Sunday on pricing. We've had, you know, it started with IPI. We had MFN. We've had HR3. Yeah. Now you've got the pricing structure on Build Back Better. There's a constant attack coming. If you could make one regulatory change or, or make one suggestion about these issues right now and, and implement it, what would it be? Yeah, I, I actually get asked this a lot. And I, my, my answer is a little nuanced, but bear with me for a second. We are focused too much on drug pricing. The panacea seems to be if we negotiate prices, everything will be better. I would argue that the reverse is true. In other words, we need to keep the innovation ecosystem alive and we need to re reward incentive to invest in the United States, but the process by which we reimburse and pay for drugs in the government systems is out of control complicated. I actually think we would save so much money if we just made it more streamlined. So if you think about Medicare 
pays for drugs under Part A and B one way. Uh, they pay for drugs under Medicaid another way. They pay for drugs at the VA another way. They pay for drugs for active duty military members under TRICARE a different way. All of these things are different. They have different prices. There's got to be a way for us to think about how do we streamline the way the government purchases and pays for prescription medicines. And I don't mean direct negotiation. What I mean is you know, all of those programs have people assigned to them in the private sector to ensure compliance with those rules that drives up costs. I think the government would be a better monopsonistic purchaser if it just got its act together and thought about how do we better deploy the assets of the federal government to get medicines where they need to be. The, the VA has done a number of programs to try and operationalize this, but it's just not a big enough piece of the overall picture to do that. And then, you know, we're, we're also funding the Indian Health Service and we're funding a number of sort of nonprofit clinics. And it's so disparate and it's all different, you know, it, it, it's all funded differently. It's all reimbursed differently. And I think that drag is really an area that we should be tackling. We should be thinking about how do we streamline the way we pay for medicines. John, it's been great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on.